Welcome to Global Connections with Robert Siegel, Navigating the New Normal, presented by the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. Our monthly leaders forum addresses vital issues facing society and technology, real estate and medicine, technology and science. My name is Dr. Joshua Plow. I'm the executive director of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, AFRMC, a 501c3 National American Charitable Organization based in New York City. We at AFRMC represent Israel's premier hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv, the leading institution named in honor of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. The hospital is a motto of coexistence as it serves 1 million patients annually from all ethnic and religious backgrounds with the same compassionate care. Please support our mission in this free public affairs program with a donation of any amount. Visit us, American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, online and donate at AFRMC.org. Join us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and Facebook. We depend on you, our audience's support, to help the hospital in Israel. So thank you if you can contribute any amount. Our host and moderator for Global Connections is Robert Siegel, former host of All Things Considered on National Public Radio for 31 years. Over the course of an hour each month, Global Connections features guests who Robert Siegel interviews as they explore important issues in our world. Today's Global Connections topic is, what's new in Washington in 2023? Thank you to our very special guest, E.J. Diani, senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and columnist for the Washington Post. Tamara Keith, White House correspondent for National Public Radio. And John Cassidy, author and staff writer for The New Yorker. And now, Global Connections with Robert Siegel. Although many things can be said about the November 8th midterm elections, one thing we cannot say is that they are completely behind us. Uh, a December runoff in Georgia will decide who won the Senate race in that state. Uh, and as our panel takes place, the exact outcome of the race to control the House of Representatives remains uncertain, although it's extremely likely that the Republicans uh, will win the majority and have a very slim majority. Uh, for all the things we cannot say about the November 8th elections, there's a lot we can say. What happened? Uh, did the Democrats' defiance of uh, decades of electoral uh, experience signal some, some important change in our politics? Has Donald Trump, who has since uh, announced his candidacy for president, uh, has he now lost his grip over the Republican Party? Uh, is he on the way out of national politics, or does he remain the number one Republican in the country? Uh, if Republicans control the House uh, by just a few votes uh, and uh, the Democrats, as we know, will control the Senate, is there any prospect for legislation over the next couple of years? Those are big questions, and we have a panel that's up for addressing them. Uh, after I interview each of our three guests, we'll have a Q&A session, uh, which you can take part in uh, by using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Our first panelist is E.J. Dion, a longtime op-ed columnist for the Washington Post. 
He's also a government professor at Georgetown University and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. I uh, always think that EJ has written more books about politics than most Americans have read. Uh, in 2020, he published Code Red, How Progressives and Moderates Can Unite to Save Our Country. But the list of his influential books on American politics is far too long uh, for me to recount here in full. EJ is a frequent commentator on television. And in my day at NPR, he was a weekly guest with David Brooks, uh, Fridays on All Things Considered, Talking Politics. EJ, uh, it's great to talk with you once again. Welcome. It is a joy to be with you, Robert, always. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, you are leading off a panel of three journalists. Uh, something journalists often do is figure out what the lead is. Uh, in, my, in my story, what's the, what's, what's the key? What's the most important thing that I'll then elaborate and flesh out in the story? So let me ask you about uh, the midterm election and the days that followed. What's, what's the lead? What happened? Well, I guess my headline would be a little long. It would be, thanks to young voters, democracy won and extremism lost. I think that what was what the first striking thing about this election is that the turnout of voters under 35 was high, quite high, certainly high enough uh, to give the Democrats a victory because they voted quite substantially uh, for Democrats. And what's striking about the Republicans who lost this election is how many of them were extremists and election deniers. The very last big race uh, decided uh, when Kerry Lake lost in Arizona was very indicative. And the election deniers lost across the board in Arizona. Um, in, uh, in Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro won an overwhelming victory. You haven't seen a victory like that uh, by anyone in Pennsylvania for quite some time over Doug Mastriano, a really extreme uh, election denier. And you saw those kinds of Republican candidates go down all across the country. It wasn't a terrible night by normal terms for Republicans. People like Mike DeWine and uh, the governor of Ohio won and Brian Kemp uh, defeated Stacey Abrams down in Georgia. But for a midterm election, it was an astonishing uh, result because the Democrats managed to hold the Senate. I think historically that hadn't happened, an election in the Senate like that hadn't happened since John F. Kennedy in the 1962 midterm. And the Democrats' losses in the House will be among the lowest in a midterm election in history. So the paradox is President Biden had quite low approval ratings and he presided over one of the most successful midterms for an incumbent president in a long time, since really, since George Bush's uh, uh, post-9-11 election in 2002. Theodore White, uh, who wrote a series of books, The Making of the President, 1960 was, was the first one, used to say that the mid-year elections, the midterms, uh, are when the hands are dealt uh, for, for the next election two years later for the presidency. So uh, if if that is the case, who's handling, uh, who, who's holding some good cards now uh, and who's holding a bad hand? Well, I think one of the people holding a particularly good hand is Governor Gretchen Whitmer of, uh, of uh, Michigan. She won, this state had obviously had voted for Donald Trump uh, in 2016 very narrowly. Then it swung to Joe Biden by a fairly decent margin. Um, Gretchen Whitmer swapped her Republican opponent. And for the first time in decades, Democrats basically controlled the whole uh, government in Michigan, including both houses of the legislature. I think she is certainly someone uh, who's been dealt a very good hand. 
Um, I think not necessarily to seek re-election, but I think Biden has been dealt a good hand, even though governing in his last two years will be difficult if, as expected, the Republicans eke out their narrow uh, majority uh, in the House. But the red wave talk, which I always thought was unmoored from what the actual data, what the data was actually telling us, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, the red wave talk meant that he far surpassed uh, his expectations. Um, I think the Republicans trying to displace Donald Trump hold a much better hand. And obviously within the Republican Party, Governor DeSantis down in Florida for now holds a very good hand. Because if there was a red wave, it was in Florida, and then it kind of stopped at the state line. Yeah. Um, I'd like you to talk about the two parties briefly and describe what you figure are the challenges and the opportunities uh, facing each each party at this time. Uh, the, um, Of course, the Republicans uh, uh, have to figure out what their relationship to Donald Trump is. Uh, is, that their, is, is that their biggest challenge? Well, I think that is a big challenge. I think there's a bigger challenge. And you saw it in the very brief fight between um, uh, Senate uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Rick Scott, who challenged him for the leadership. McConnell overwhelmed uh, Scott in the vote today. But each of them offered a critique of the party that I think is correct. Um, Scott said the Republicans didn't run on anything and they really did have no program. The problem is what they really want to run on, particularly on economics, is unpopular. And when Rick Scott threw out his own program for the party, um, he actually gave Democrats some gifts. He said we should rethink Social Security and Medicare should be reauthorized every five years. Democrats hung that around every Republican candidate. He said low-income Americans don't pay enough in income tax. Uh, Raising taxes on the less well-off was not popular. Uh Mitch McConnell said that the Republicans had a group of bad candidates. That was implicitly critical of Donald, had some bad candidates, I should emphasize. Um, That was an implicit critique of Scott's recruitment and his going along with Donald Trump, and he criticized a campaign of chaos. I think the Republicans have a problem where their program is now so unpopular that they can't really run on it. They had no platform in 2020. And simply running on uh, uh, unhappiness, they thought that inflation and opposition to crime would win them the election, turned out that wasn't good enough to win the kind of victory they thought they would win. So I think the Republicans have to figure out what they're for. And the Trump uh, interlude, if that's what it turns out to be, I think has really blocked any kind of policy development over the last six years. And I think that they have to rethink where they stand in light of a country that is not as anti-government as it was when Ronald Reagan was president. That's what the Republicans face. What do the Democrats face? Well, the Democrats always have uh, fights uh, between their centrist wing or more moderate wing and uh, their left. And uh, you are kind enough to mention Code Red. I think that the only way Democrats win is when they can succeed in creating a coalition of the left and the center. They did that again uh, on Tuesday. They won, obviously, the votes of self-described liberals overwhelmingly, uh, but they also won um, self-described moderates by a decent margin. 
Um, I think the Democrats have to figure out a program that's ambitious enough for the left and appeals broadly to the country. I think they had such a program to a considerable degree in what Biden was proposing. Um, my hunch is that they will become the party of uh, family. Uh, I think that among their the the uh, to do on their to do list will be measures like trying to bring back the child tax credit, uh, trying to enact universal daycare and uh, universal pre-K. Now, even if that doesn't pass, even if a Republican Congress blocks it, uh, I think they will um, they would do well to try to advance it. Uh, and then obviously, President Biden has to deal with challenges abroad. Yeah. But if I could just say in closing, and uh, uh, Janan Ganesh had a good column on this in the uh, Financial Times today, it's actually been a pretty good year for liberal democracy. The Ukraine pushback against uh, the Russian invasion and that success. Macron had problems in France, but he beat back Le Pen. Lula beating Bolsonaro down in Brazil. Uh, I think we might celebrate a certain, uh, I think liberal democracy is in somewhat better shape in the world than it was uh, when uh, a year or two ago. Okay, E.J. Dion, uh, stick with us because we'll be coming back to you for the Q&A in a, in a, in a few minutes, uh, but thanks. Uh, our next panelist is Tamara Keith, a White House correspondent for NPR. Uh, Tam is also a co-host of the NPR Politics podcast, uh, and she's a regular on the PBS NewsHour's Politics Monday segment. Uh, Tam, by the way, is president of the White House Correspondents Association, uh, and her work for NPR uh, includes her uh, uh, going far from Washington. She uh, this year covered the race for Congress in North Carolina's 13th district, a swing district that went Democratic. Tam, uh, thanks for joining us. Good to be with you. Uh, so the lead question for you, uh, what what's the lead on what happened in these midterm elections? I think that uh, the guardrails held any number of people running for office who were election deniers ended up losing their races. It was surprising, but also it, you know, it is a decent sign for the basic functions of democracy. Uh, I would say that beyond beyond that idea, there's also uh, a headline, which is that, you know, the red wave wasn't a, a wave. And and I think that, you know, there are a number of reasons for that. Uh, and and a lot of them are things that we were well aware of as as it was as as the election was arriving, but a lot of us didn't know whether to trust our instincts or not because um, because it, it was just such an unusual year. Um, and what I mean by that is, yes, it was a midterm with an unpopular president or or a president with low approval ratings, and you had voters in at least in polling, indicating that inflation or the economy was a number one issue for them. What I found in interviewing voters, what people who run focus groups also told me, is that when you talk to them about the thing that was motivating them, in a lot of cases, it was the abortion issue or sort of a, a like a, a, a broader scope freedom issue, personal freedom issue. And um, so even though universally people have have unease about the economy it ultimately didn't end up being the the driving issue for at least some share of voters um and and then the other thing that was just completely abnormal about this year 
is that, you know, normally a midterm is a referendum on the president. Uh, but there were two presidents trying to make it a referendum. <laughs> there were two presidents out there campaigning. Mm-hmm. There was President Biden. And then there was the guy that lost in 2020 who never admitted it and who was campaigning as though he was an incumbent president trying, uh, you know, trying to get his people across the line. And so what you ended up with was um, a choice. It was a choice election, which is exactly what Democrats wanted uh, and exactly what Republicans didn't want. They wanted a referendum on Biden and on Biden's policies. The Democrats did some uh, controversial advertising out of the uh, politics ain't beanbag department, uh, which was they they actually uh, uh, did ads that were intended to effectively help election deniers in some key races. Uh, so that the more unreasonable candidate would be nominated by the Republican Party and it would be easier for them to win the the House or Senate seat in in question. Uh, They wanted this in this season to run against election deniers, it seems. Does that mean that people at the White House are are very excited and happy that Donald Trump has announced and that they might get a chance to run against him uh, a second time? Just to go back to your point about those ads and and sort of putting the the finger on the scales for election deniers and and people from the the most extreme fringes, um, that was a risky bet. It turns out that they bet right and that those candidates tended to lose by even more than other candidates. But that was a risk. Uh, And if it had gone the other direction, then you would have potentially had people with uh, critical roles in elections, also denying the outcome and and trying to sow distrust in in the very system that they would be overseeing. Uh, So, you know, sure, the the gamble worked out. And in fact, it has in the past sort of promoting the more extreme candidate as Claire McCaskill did in 2012 uh, with Richard Murdoch in the uh, no, not with Richard Murdoch. No, Todd, with Aiken. Uh, Aiken. Aiken. Yeah. Aiken. Uh, Todd Aiken. Richard Murdoch was the one that that knocked out Dick Luger in Indiana. Um, but uh, and and that worked. Then it's continued to work uh, because the there are these more extreme candidates, and I think it also led to a real um, contradiction. Right, like they're they're out there saying we're really concerned about democracy and yet some element of the democratic party was promoting people who if they won would have been a th- a threat to democracy by the, by by their uh by their own telling um so is the white house glad that donald trump is running for president sure i guess um you know president biden was asked uh yesterday or whatever day it was because i can't keep track of time it was today in asia uh and uh and he was asked if he wanted to comment on trump throwing his hat in and he said nah not interested um but he you know he seems to relish the idea of a rematch uh and and i think that you know that and and I think that it does create this interesting um, conundrum because there are a lot of Democratic voters who say that they're concerned that that Joe Biden is going to be 80 years old this weekend, that he Mm -hmm. would be the oldest president ever. He already is the oldest president ever and that they're they're just concerned uh, and maybe don't want him to run again. I talked to a ton of voters who don't want him to run again. Um, And yet he truly believes and 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 i and i'm not doubting this that you know he's the guy who beat trump 
he was the guy who could unite the party enough to beat Trump. And he and he and he believes that, you know, he needs to be the guy to beat Trump again. Um, I don't know if Trump will be the nominee. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things we don't know. I don't know if Biden will ultimately throw his hat in or not, although he keeps signaling that he is. Uh, But um, but the 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 like fighting the last war is something that uh, is now looming large over all of us. Okay, well, stick with us, Tam, because we're going to have the Q&A session in a few minutes uh, after we hear from our third panelist. Uh, Our third panelist is John Cassidy of The New Yorker where he is a staff writer, uh, as uh, will be evident when you hear uh, John is originally from the UK uh, and was an editor at the Sunday Times of London at one point. He's also a contributor to the New York Review of Books. Uh, In addition to being a lucid observer of American politics, uh, John Cassidy is also an economics writer. His book on the dot-com bubble is called uh, Dot Dot Con, The Greatest Story Ever Sold. And he's written as well about the life and work of the British economist John Maynard Keynes. Uh, John is a returning guest to Global Connections. John Cassidy, welcome back. Thanks very much for inviting me on. And uh, let me put the uh, the question of what, what the lead is for you. And given what you write about, I suppose you're free to throw in, if you choose to, uh, the thousands of people laid off in the tech sector, Elon Musk's adventures at Twitter. Um, uh, what else has happened? Uh, the crypto or uh, the latest crypto implosion, whatever. But Or just keep it, s- stick to politics. Your call. Well, I, I'll start off with politics. And I, I think... After last week's election, we can't really resist going back to the old uh, James Carville quote. But this time, it's I'd say it's you know it, it isn't just the economy stupid, mm-hmm. because going into the elections, the conventional wisdom among the political class, which was supported by a lot of polling, we can maybe talk about why the polls were wrong at some point. Mm-hmm. But uh, very consistent message was that people were disappointed with the economy. I just looked at some figures now from an AP Votecast survey, which should which should be reliable. They ask a hundred thousand people. It's not just a um, not just a you know a small scale poll. It was actually introduced to try and get over some of the faults of the old exit polls. And they said three quarters of their sample said the overall economy was poor or not so good, and only a quarter said it was good or excellent. So you had economic discontent. You had very low approval ratings for the president in the low forties. Every I mean. Every sort of rule of politics tells you that's a bad year for the for the Democrats, for the incumbents. And of course, it didn't happen. So what did happen? I think there's a couple of things, probably. Number one, and getting back to it's not just the economy, stupid. I think the encouraging thing we saw this year is that voters can keep more than one thing in their head at the mm-hmm. same time. Even people who are concerned about the economy have other concerns as well. And in a lot of places, I think people said, well, we are concerned about the economy. We are concerned about inflation. But in this particular race, we're more concerned about other issues, whether it was abortion, whether it was democracy, whether it was a um, unacceptably extreme Republican candidate. And I think there was a lot of sort of strategic voting in that ways, which sort of defied the expectations of the pundits. And I think is a message to us that, you know, you can't just look at these things in blanket terms and not look at what's happening on the ground. This was a different election. It wasn't a regular midterms election. We had the impact of Trump, as a as the previous panelists have said. And, you know, that, that scrambled everything. Uh but uh, all those thousands of layoffs in the tech sector, for example, should they make us not just worry about inflation, but the prospects of recession uh, e- even more? Uh, well, sure. I mean, there is definitely a danger of recession next year. I mean, economists, as we all know, as Harry Truman said, you line them all up together, you're not going to get a single conclusion. 
but um, they're divided. The um, conventional wisdom, I think, still Bloomberg had a survey last week saying I think three quarters of professional economists think the American economy will go into a recession next year. I was actually just reading this morning a uh, contrary view from Goldman Sachs in which they said they think there'll be slow growth, but the economy will uh, avoid a technical recession of two quarters of a negative growth and we'll just see a slowdown even though the rest of the world will, will see a bust. Certainly we're facing a, a period of slower growth. They've already had a period of slower growth. Two of the quarters this year were negative GDP growth and the third quarter was better, but it still wasn't, wasn't gangbusters. We're in a period of slow growth. The question is whether it turns into an outright recession. Uh, you wrote in The New Yorker that uh, over the long term, enabling President Biden to change the composition of the courts uh, could be the biggest legacy of, of the midterms. You, you think that the, Dem the Democratic majority, re retaining the Democratic majority in the Senate, uh, will have a huge impact on the judiciary. You know, your other panelists may know more about this than me, but my, my understanding of the American political system is you can't do very much when you've got divided government. But one of the few things you can do as a president is get your um, judicial nominations through the Senate um, as long as you have 50 votes there because the filibuster doesn't uh, doesn't apply there. The I was looking at this the other day and the uh, Biden administration have already nominated dozens of new of uh, new judges to the circuit courts and the district courts, which is sort of stuck in the progress because, of course, the Republicans try to bung up the works, as as the Democrats did when the Republicans were trying to nominate uh, the Republican justices. So it just takes a long time to get this stuff through. And I think the fact that the, the Senate maintains a, a, you know, a narrow Democratic majority is going to be historically important because one of the things which... Um, Bush and Trump did during the uh, Republican last two Republican presidencies was to stuff the courts full of uh, right-thinking judges. One of the big sort of intellectual agendas for the Democratic Party is to get that balance back, and they've been busy trying to do that through their judicial appointments. So I think you know historically that mm -hmm. is going to be an important uh, result of the midterms. Uh, we are facing the recurring game of chicken that uh, Washington plays, which is uh, extending the debt limit or risking default on, on the nation's debt. Uh, how, is it, how is it shaping up? And uh, is there some way of getting around this, this well, strange dispute that uh, recurs? Well, I mean, I, I've been reporting on American economy and politics for a lot longer than I care to remember now, since the late 80s. And this comes up all the time, of course. So far, we've managed to avoid it. it seems the danger seems to get uh, worse every time. I think in, in this case, I'm hopeful we'll get through it. The Democrats will try to push it through during the lame duck session. Whether they'll manage to do that, I don't know. But they're probably, what's more likely is that we get some sort of temporary uh, temporary increase taken us into the next Congress. Now, since the Democrats control the Senate, that's, that's a big help, obviously. They're going to have to peel off a few Republicans in the House to support an a longer-term increase in the debt limit. But, you know, it's tough for the Republican leaders, too, if they've only got a handful majority. Maybe the White House can peel off the odd one in suburban blue districts and, you know, avoid a, avoid a catastrophe. I think that's what will happen at the end of the day. There's always big scares about this, but even the Republican Party, I think, at the end of the day, probably don't want to be blamed for a debt default and a sort yeah. of catastrophic collapse in the stock market, et cetera. Which uh, I'm, I'm just curious, what's your sense of where Donald Trump now stands in uh, in American politics? I mean, I think he's a diminished figure. There's no doubt about that. We just don't know how diminished he is. 
I mean, I, my own feeling is that he announced, I don't think there's any any um, appetite in the country as a whole for a, uh, a new presidential campaign this early, even within the Republican Party, even within people who support Trump. I don't see a lot of them saying you needed to announce now rather than next summer or whatever. I think this is a procedural maneuver by Trump to try and head off the prosec- potential prosecutions. He thinks he's in stronger shape if um, if he's a president if he's a um, presidential candidate than he is if he's a retired president. I think he's sort of building the pressure or trying to build pressure on the Justice Department to perhaps appoint a special prosecutor just to delay, delay, delay. And as I say, Trump. Whatever one thinks of him has got a very astute sort of grasp on power and raw mm. power politics. And I think this has got more to do with the early announcement has got more to do with his legal predicament than it does with 2024. The, the theory, which which we'll see if it, if there's any validity to it, but the theory that if he's a political candidate, it's somehow more unseemly for the Justice Department or other prosecutors to... I'm not a legal expert. I don't pretend to be, but I've even seen in the last couple of days a couple of anti-Trump legal experts saying that Merrick Garland may be tempted by that argument, mm-hmm. given it just he may think it's politically more difficult to indict a presidential candidate than it is an ex-president. And for that reason, may be tempted to shunt it off to a a special prosecutor. John Cassidy, uh, thank you very much for for your contribution. Hang, stick with us, because we're going to bring back E.J. Dion and Tamara Keith right now. And I'd like to put some questions to all all three of you. First, something that, that that confuses me a bit about the election result. Clearly, the country is is remarkably divided, closely divided, uh, in that we're getting a very close, small majorities in the House and as small a majority as you could have in the Senate. Uh, I used to think that the the best guide to how we're divided was the was the position on abortion that uh, people were pro life or pro choice was like being wet or dry during the Depression or being pro-slavery or anti-slavery long before that. But it seems actually that there seems to be a, a a fairly broad consensus on how to address that question. So the question I'd like to hear from all of you, we can start with EJ, is, is um, what exactly is it that that divides Americans uh, so neatly in half? Is it is it education? Is it views of race? Is it uh, nativism versus uh, 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 immigration? What, 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 what is it that has a split right down the middle? Could I just uh, say that part of that split is from something Tam mentioned. I just want to build on something she said that I think was really important in this election, which is there was more than one incumbent. Um, Mm -hmm. She was absolutely right to underscore the role of the abortion issue uh, in so many of these races, particularly in states like Michigan, where it was on the ballot. And she's right that Trump became a second incumbent. And in a way, the Supreme Court became the third incumbent in this election because there was a backlash. And from the Democrats' point of view, from Joe Biden's point of view, the more incumbents, the better, because he didn't want to be the only one they were uh, reacting against. And I think that you're right, Robert, we are again split right down the middle. And I think What's happened is so many of our identities are now reinforcing each other and they all get tied up in partisanship. Uh, There are divisions by race, there are deep divisions by educational status, then there are divisions by region, and there are divisions by metro area versus small town rural. Uh, And so you are 
Uh, I think the fact that those various identities reinforce each other, and when you put all those together, you get about half the country on either side. I think one of the, you might have begun to see a bit of a break in that in the election. I commend those great maps the New York Times put on their website that had little arrows showing counties moving one way or the other. And in some of the swing states, particularly Michigan and Pennsylvania, but also in Arizona, all the arrows were pointing toward uh, the Democrats. And that um, you know, it was very notable, for example, in Pennsylvania, that some of the rural counties and small town counties that were overwhelmingly red had actually a shift toward John Fetterman and a big shift toward uh, Josh Shapiro. Um, as same, you saw something similar in Michigan. So um, if if from the Democratic point of view, um, you saw uh, a real break in that 50-50. On the Republican side, the arrows were quite Republican. So you saw DeSantis, for example, mm-hmm. winning Miami-Dade County, uh, something a Republican hadn't won in a long time. Um, so maybe we are at least state by state moving away from the 50-50 split. Mm-hmm. That certainly there's some evidence of that in this election. Tam, what, what what do you think? If you were to try to explain to somebody what Americans are so evenly divided about politically. So, you know, I, I was out interviewing voters in this North Carolina 13 district, and it it is an evenly divided district. It is a district that was designed to be competitive. And yet there are like almost no swing precincts. There are no evenly dis- divided precincts. Um, there are red precincts and there are blue precincts. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so part of that is like we've sorted ourselves. We We like to be comfortable. We like to be around people who are like us. And the geographic sorting is pretty darn impressive. Um, and and then it it be has become a team sport. And and frankly, politics, some people spend a lot more time thinking about politics than they think about yeah. sports. There's not, you know, there's no uh uniting behind uh, you know, America's team. Uh it's it's red team and blue team. And you know, talking to voters, they would say, oh, you know. There was a time when I used to be able to vote for Republicans, but not now, not this election. How I couldn't dare do that. The stakes are too high. It doesn't matter who the people are. I'm voting for the party. And and the same was certainly the case with Republicans. And, you know, you you ask like, well, what what are what is your concern? And it isn't just you know, a disagreement about large government or small government. That's not even a disagreement at all. Um, It's about so-called wokeness or or a discomfort with changes in society um and and that encompasses race and gender and sexual preference and you know um just uh you know like even disney <laughs> uh it it truly is yeah. um there there's just this division where it's not just that the other guys are wrong and it's not a disagreement about policy. It's it's that the other guys are bad or evil, and and it's um, it's really stunning to hear it come out of people's mouths, <laughs> uh, because it's not um, it's not just the numbers. It's it's like 
genuine, firmly held beliefs. Talk to this couple and this, it was, it was kind of hilarious. The mom was like, you know, when I raised my kids, I didn't want to impose my political views on them because I wanted them to be able to, you know, develop their own ideas and be free thinkers. And then they went away to college and they got indoctrinated with liberalism. And now their votes offset mine. And I regret not talking to my children about politics. Which may which may lead us to education as one of the one of the yes. uh, d- dividing lines. John and Cassidy, age. thoughts about and age. Uh, uh, John Cassidy, what do you what do you think about? Well, I mean, if you just look at the polling and the um, mm-hmm. sort of psychological data going back the last twenty years, there's no doubt about it that the educational divide is the most um, important now, uh, especially between college degrees and non-college degrees. Now, within that, there are important there are important things to distinguish: two-year college degrees, four-year college degrees. Look at four-year college degrees and above. The Democrats are basically consolidating their base there. That is now the base of the Democratic Party. But people no college no college at all tend to be poor people are all still disproportionately Democrat as well. They uh, tend to be minorities because the working class in America is not as you know, there's a lot, a lot of minorities. Um, so you've got to sort of divide there. And the Republican base now is the sort of part college uh, people who've done a couple of years or maybe people went to college, didn't come, didn't compete, complete their degree. The sort of what maybe in the old, in Britain, we'd call the sort of upper working classes, lower middle mm-hmm. class. And that is the Republican base now. I think you just see that cephalogically. Now, why that turns into... A, you know, a mighty fight and uh, such hyperpolarization. I think you've got to look beyond sort of sephological factors and, you know, what's transformed the world in the last 20 years. I, I blame a lot of it on the internet myself. I mean, I think that the internet has turned politics not just into a sport, as, as Tam rightly said, but also it's a sort of 24-hour participation sport. You know, you can get online and look at politics day and night, read, get radicalized online. And I think that, uh, you know, we live in a different world from the world I think all of us started out reporting on, where, yeah. you know, people, if they read the daily newspaper, that was all the politics they got. Well said. And I think probably Dion and I, who who lived in Britain for a time, uh, haven't heard cephology uh, uh, spoken of in, ma- in many years, but it's, uh, it's good. <laughs> we can talk be... about ABs and CDs. <laughs> <Yes>. Right. <laughs> you, take, you take me back to, to London, dear. Uh, uh, the study of, uh, of uh, what goes on in our heads, I guess. I'm curious, you know, when Donald Trump took office and broke all sorts of political norms and and uh, uh, was was obviously off to an extremely controversial start, I I felt confident, completely wrongly, but I, I, I felt confident that Republicans like uh, Senators Portman of Ohio and uh, Blunt of of uh, Missouri uh, would be uh, kind of a, a vocal conscience of the party. Uh, and instead, they remained quiet. Uh, and then uh, the Republicans suffered losses in the uh, 2018 uh, midterms and in the 2020 national election. And the Republicans still remained uh, generally pretty quiet. Uh, is there any reason, uh, one of you can, can, whichever one of you wants to try this, but is there, is there some reason to believe that there's something so different about this result from last week uh, that Republicans are willing to risk the wrath of that part of the base that is pro-Trump, or is he still the the figure you can't cross? Tam, your 
Uh, I, I see you I mean, nodding. I, so what do you maybe, think? Maybe this will be the time, right? Like maybe this will be the time that the Republican Party says, gosh, he is an albatross. Uh, you know, we've been we've been quietly saying that in, uh, you know, cocktail parties. But now we're going to we're going to act on it. I think that we are more likely and I'm happy to, you know, I'm I've been proven wrong before, but it feels like we are in another moment. Um, one of these moments that we've been in many times before, you know, like after he came down the escalator, after Charlottesville, after um after uh, January 6th, where they're like, oh, this is the time we're going to make a break. And then like, you know, within a couple of weeks, people are going down to Mar-a-Lago to kiss the ring. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you guys think I'm wrong. That's good. No, no. I, I want to <laughs> say I think there's good reason why you're right. I, I think that that. This may be the time for the following reason. All of those Republicans who in their heart of hearts almost certainly disapproved of what Trump did, didn't jump ship because they looked at the polls. They looked at the their primary electorates. They looked at the Republicans they might deal with after they retired even and saw that Donald Trump was overwhelmingly popular. What was really striking right after this election were a couple of polls that came out right away that said suddenly Ron DeSantis is preferred among Republican voters over Donald Trump. And I think there is at least the possibility that this will liberate people from their fear because suddenly they say, you know, I guess it's that all line. There go the people. I will follow them. But I think they will now have at least feel they have some room uh, to take him on. We'll see, because as Tam said, you know, we've been there before. But I think when you saw that rapid movement in the polls, um, it told me that this might give them some room. And I think Mitch McConnell, for example, is increasingly showing a willingness to really beat up on Trump indirectly. We might get there more directly, but we'll see. Oh, but I, Mitch McConnell is an yeah. apostate. Yeah, he's right. Like, yeah. And he's been hammered. And somebody will find dignity after being attacked. DeSantis was attacked. Youngkin was attacked. Uh, you wonder, will any of them say, wait a minute, DeSantis pushed back quietly uh, this mm -hmm. week. So I, I think something may be going on in the Republican electorate that lets them escape their fear. I mean, John, I, I, yeah. I, I have an economic perspective on this one. Okay. I mean, it seems to me the Republicans have a sort of what economists refer to as a coordination problem. They, it does not in any of their interest to distance themselves Trump from Trump individually, because one, one by one, he can kill them. We've seen that time and time again over the last four or five years. Somebody breaks from the pack, Trump comes out against them, the mob goes after him, and you know he goes away, Jeff Flake, whoever you want to think about. But if they could all go together, and Trump can't shoot them one by one, and they can show that actually there is a majority in the party, then there is safety in numbers for them. Mm -hmm. And the question is, how do you coordinate that? It's not easy. And I think what you're starting to see here is some sort of entrepreneurs coming out, Murdoch, for example, um, with his uh, tax on Trump in, in the Post and in the uh, Wall Street Journal and cutting away from um, the Trump speech on, on Fox News, et cetera. He can coordinate three, um, you know, three media outlets because he owns them. The question is, will the Republican politicians come on board with him? I mean, I, I'm sort of surprised, given the catastrophe they had, that we haven't seen more 
or any real you know criticism from the top of the party. We are seeing it from some individual senators and some individual congressmen, but you're not really seeing it from the top of the party. If they're ever going to do it, this is the time yeah. to do it. Yeah. Because one well, thing I just on the Murdoch press, can I just underscore what John said? In the New York Post today, the Murdoch paper, <laughs> yes. there was a five-paragraph story. On, on the front page, it was Florida retiree announces for president. And the lead on the a New York Post story was, with just 720 days to go before the next election, a Florida retiree made the surprise announcement Tuesday night that he was running for president. And <laughs> it's clear that Murdoch, at least in print, has made the choice. We'll see how much that goes to Fox News. But I was watching Trump on Fox yesterday, and even Fox cut away a couple of times from Trump, though a lot of yeah. their commentators yeah. were all in on him. So we'll see what Fox does. I think his daughter-in-law is on the payroll, so she's definitely all in. Yeah. <laughs> a couple yeah. of... Uh... Yes, uh, just a couple of questions from people who are, who are listening and watching us. What about the January 6th investigation? Uh, what will happen in, in 2003, uh, in, 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 excuse me, in 2023 uh, regarding January 6th? Uh, Tam, I, I, I assume that the, the committee's work is, is, uh, is, is done, even if it, it wanted to continue. Yeah, it's winding down. They've given Trump a deadline to to testify. One assumes he won't. There will not be time for them to pursue contempt of Congress charges, I don't think, before the committee will dissolve because there will be a new Congress. And that Congress will be busy investigating Hunter Biden's laptop. It, it, <laughs> which is the kind of investigation we should expect coming up with the, with the Republican majority. But they will put they, out a report and yes. they will yeah. turn all their documents over, make them public. Yes, they have made a point that they will they are going to release reams of documents and put them out in, a, in, a, in an accessible way to the public uh, so that, you know, work on this could continue or at least that there's a public record out there. I, you know, I don't know that it is going to be a bestseller like the 9-11 Commission report, uh, but um, they'll at least they're getting the documentation out there. I'm curious, did, did any, any of you think that the that the work of the uh, January 6th committee uh, had any any influence uh, that when people talk about democracy, had was was there some some effect of of, of those hearings and of uh, Liz uh, Cheney's work that um, that actually affected people, or was that an inside the Beltway uh, uh, a phenomenon for the most part? John, what do you what do you think? I think it did have some impact. Actually, I think it sort of helped. It sort of helped sort of set the intellectual parameters of the debate. It put a lot of stuff out there which maybe people hadn't seen before. The details of what happened on January, you know, on January 6th. The stuff from inside the White House, particularly, was devastating about what Trump sitting in his little office watching Fox and refusing to call call anybody up on the hill. You know, I think if you were just a sort of a patriotic, middle of the road a Republican American. That was pretty tough to stomach, even even for you. And I, I think that has discredited Trump in the eyes of quite a lot of people. Yeah. I want to put something to the I, three of you. Oh, yes, uh, EJ, did you? I, I just that? agree with that. I, I was striking on election day, according to the exit poll, at least last time I checked the number, 58% of Americans had an unfavorable view of Donald Trump, but that had to include some Republicans or Republican-leaning independents. And I think they did a very good job of packaging what they were presenting to people. And yeah. I think some of that message helped create a template where 
Biden at the end of the campaign could say democracy is on the ballot. I think the ground was prepared by the committee for that kind of argument. Uh, I'd like to put this to to all of you, something that um, our friend David Brooks wrote about Donald Trump in the New York Times that I thought was interesting. He held Trump accountable for uh, the, and I'm quoting now, bigotry, buffoonery, and corruption, as well as his pension for performance politics that he ushered into the Republican Party. But uh, Brooks wrote, and I'm quoting now, to his great credit, Trump reinvented the GOP. He destroyed the corporate husk of Reaganism and set the party on the path to being a multiracial working class party. Uh, EJ, I'll start with you. What do you think about that? I think that it's important to face up to the fact that Trump did take um, a what was becoming a working class party, mostly white, made it more so. Uh, during Trump's years, to the surprise of many of us, there were also gains among some working class Latinos, although the Latino vote continued to be Democratic uh, in this election, pretty much outside of Florida and a few parts of Texas. Uh, and I think that does, I think it was a revolt of the strong working class wing of the party against boardroom um, Republicanism. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't uh, give him a lot of credit uh, for proposing a whole lot of stuff uh, to help those voters. And I think that is what creates the contradiction uh, in the Republican Party. You can argue perhaps a bit on his trade policies on that front, but I think the Republicans have the problem now of this working class base without a program for the working class voter supporting them. This is something that another conservative, Ross Douthat, has been writing mm -hmm. about for about 15 years. And I, I think that is a big problem for the Republicans going forward. And without Trump, they won't have whatever odd charis charisma Trump had for these voters. And they won't have a program either. I, I totally agree with that. I mean, the modern Republican Party is sort of working class and sort of populist on the stump. And then once they get into office, they're a plutocratic party. I mean, you just have to look at the four years of Trump in what was the big legislative achievement of Trump's presidency. It was the 2017 Tax Cutting Act, which was massively slanted towards the rich. And um, apart from that, he didn't actually do that very much. So I, I, I just totally agree with that. I mean, I think it does raise the question in the Democratic Party of how they're going to counter that, because uh, the last time I looked at the figures, the number, uh, the sort of just the split in the electorate, I think it's still between 40 and 45 percent of the electorate is non-college white. That's by far the biggest mm -hmm. chunk of the electorate. So you just as a as a ruling political party, you cannot afford to get, give that away completely. And if if as there are some tentative signs as EJ was saying, that's starting to spread into the Latino community, the uh, GOP appeal, and perhaps even into black males. Um, there's some evidence of that from exit polls. That does also present a challenge to the Democratic Party. How, even as they become more and more a sort of party of the educated. Tam, thoughts which on this? Is why just, oh. just one sentence, which is why I underscored what happened in Pennsylvania and Michigan, because those were the two states where you really began to see the Democrats come back and make some inroads uh, into the white working class areas and combine them with 
uh, black and Latino votes. I, I think the question is, does that spread farther? It's what Tim Ryan was trying to do in Ohio, but it didn't uh, didn't quite work out. Well, Tim I mean, Ohio is a very Republican state. Now, yeah. I remember in 2004 camping out at the Secretary of State's office until the wee hours of the morning because the, the election was decided in Ohio. I don't think anybody's going to be camping out at the Secretary of State's office in Ohio anytime soon. It's it's not a purple state. It's not a swing state. Um, you know, I think that uh, the Republican Party has pretty much completely severed its relationship with with the Chamber of Commerce. The the idea of a Chamber of Commerce Republican, I mean, the, they exist, but they're the ones on an island at this point. Um, and, and it really is populism. It's... Um, it's populism without it's populism without um a lot of policy to go with it other than sort of like scapegoating and saying well you know these people are taking your jobs and and those people are eating your lunch and and that sort of a thing um that's very much the message um without other than you know like blocking immigration or or policy in that realm mm-hmm. it's just mostly about a a feeling um, and and they've you know they've really captured a feeling that that does appeal uh, at least to um, some uh, some parts of the Latino community, especially Latino men and and some African American men. Um, you know, de- there there's always been this uh, this uh, gender gap uh, with women more likely to be Democratic than. Do you think it's essentially a nationalist feeling that? Um... I'm I am uh, proud of the America I grew up in. I don't like this crazy place it's turning into. Uh, and uh, furthermore, I don't like uh, uh, people who are running it down and always pointing out the bad things about it. Yes, there's there's absolutely except that Trump also is always saying that America <laughs> is a wasteland and <laughs> and, you know, LaGuardia is a third world country and there's drug dealers everywhere and people under yeah. every bridge. And, you know, so um but but they blame someone else for that. That is that is it's not it's not anyone's fault who, uh, you know, agrees with Trump. It's it's those other people doing that to you and to your America. There's that's one where John's point about plutocracy and populism, yeah. Martin Wolf at the FT years ago called it Pluto populism, uh, which is what it is. And I think without Trump. Pluto populism is a lot harder to pull off. Yeah, I just want to for, for a minute or so just to address uh, one issue that I find I'm I'm uh, it, it it hurts me as an American to think uh, what has not been done, and that's immigration. A program was started DACA uh, for which to qualify it, you had to be under 31 years of age by June of 2012 uh, to be eligible for that category. Uh, that's 10 years ago. I mean, we, the dreamers whom we thought of as young people uh, who had uh, uh, graduated from, from community college or served in the armed forces, uh, the oldest of them are now 41. Uh, and, and given the, the uh, division of the, of the parties in the Congress, it looks like they'll be 43 and still in this, in this odd category. Uh, everyone seems to agree the immigration system is broken. And there seems to be a a willingness at at some level on both sides, EJ, to let it remain broken. Better 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 that than 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 try to figure out some some general comprehensive uh, uh, immigration reform that would normalize the condition of 11 million people and maybe bring in more people legally if we need workers uh, to uh, uh, to to make our economy work. Do you have any hopes for any kind of comprehensive immigration legislation? 
Uh, first, I agree with you. I think it's absurd and sad that we haven't acted on this problem. Um, and Senator Padilla the other day was of California mm -hmm. was expressing some hope that perhaps uh, action on the Dreamers could be linked to some agreement about toughness at the border uh, and begin to put together um, put together a coalition that would be sufficient to get it through uh, Congress. Um, you know, it's 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 impossible to be optimistic given how hard it's been to do. Uh, up to this point, but I think it would behoove everybody to actually get something done on this front. And I think it's especially important for Biden, President Biden, to come out and push hard uh, on this because Republicans are going to keep certain Trump Republicans are going to continue to use immigration as an issue. And I think the combination of a certain amount of toughness on enforcement, but saying we got a right some we've got to right the situation we have mm -hmm. among dreamers and others. It's it's actually popular when you poll it. Uh, yeah, you just yeah, have to yeah. be able, you have to figure out how to put together the votes for it. Tam, what do you think? Yeah, I got I got a press release from Dick Durbin saying he was bringing back the dreamer bill in the lame duck. And I was just like, oh, my God, he is still trying. He is still trying. Um, we want to get it passed before they all retire. You know, it's, it yeah. probably would be, a, be helpful. I mean, he's been working on it for 20 years. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I, I'm with yeah. EJ. I, uh, you know, the, the potential for a deal has always existed. Mm -hmm. And and I think the last truly serious attempt was 2013, yeah. which was a decade ago. Yeah. John, John, John Cassie, you may have. You, you oh, may have dealt with our immigration system. Well, I, I am an immigrant, so um, <laughs> I'm a very, a very privileged one. I came here on a scholarship, and uh, I'm now an American citizen, I'm proud to say. But um, I think it's just an issue which is too easy to demagogue inside the Republican yeah. Party. Yeah. Again, it's a coordination problem. If you got all the Republicans in a room privately and said, look, you know, we should do something about the dreamers, You'd probably get a majority in favor even in today's republican party but they're never going to say it publicly and i think as i say it's just it's so hard to coordinate it's, it's like gun control it's just an issue which the polls have decided there's nothing in it for them really so yeah. we'll move on to something else which is, is very sad i agree though they did do something on gun control it wasn't big but it was the biggest thing they've done in a generation that, that's true. I mean, but that's brought into public view every so often, right, with another horrendous mass killing, yeah. uh, whereas immigrants are not, you know, it's not generally a very visible problem until we get some horrendous happenings on the border, and then it fades out of the public debate again. Uh, I, I want to thank all three of our guests, E.J. Dion, Tamara Keith, uh, and John Cassidy. Uh, many thanks as well to Joshua Plout, uh, Nate Bonzani, uh, Ronnie Giuliano, Adrian Kiss, uh, all from the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, uh, as well as thanks to our technical director, Bobby Grandone. Uh, our program sponsor is the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, a 501c3 national charitable organization uh, that represents in the United States, Israel's largest hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv. Uh, the website of the group is www.afrmc.org. Uh, join us next month for Crime in America. Uh, our guests will include Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University Law Center and Chuck Wexler, the executive director 
of the Police Executive Research Forum. I'm Robert Siegel, and this has been Global Connections, Navigating the New Normal. Uh, see you next month. Stay healthy and stay safe.